You're listening to The Questions Hip Hop Podcast. My name is Sean Kantrowitz, and this week, I'm really excited to bring you a brand new installment of the Can't Knock the Shuffle series, and the guest in this episode is Brother Ali, who has previously been on the show last year. He was on a Questions Trivia episode, and I was really thrilled to welcome him back to do the shuffle, which is where I basically have taken his entire catalog. I'm laughing because when I say do the shuffle, it sounds like a, a dance, which that is not what is happening. That would not translate very well to uh, an audio-only format. Um, but Can't Knock the Shuffle is where I basically take an artist's entire catalog, I put it into shuffle, and then I ask them to tell the stories behind seven randomly selected songs from their own discography. And I had a conversation with someone recently who was sort of asking me, okay, but you know, what is the format of this podcast? I don't get it. There's different type of episodes. And I said to them, well, yeah, that's kind of the point. We've got brand new questions episodes and classic episodes and can knock the shuffle episodes and making Illmatic episodes. But to me, they are all basically different branches of the same tree. It's an enthusiasm for and a celebration of hip hop and its practitioners its creators, exploring what it means to be a participant and what it means to be a fan. And I guess if you want to really get technical about it, these are all programs, no matter what the format is, that are driven by, you know, quote unquote, questions. And so they all belong, in my mind, as part of the questions. And I might expand to even a few more formats down the line at some point. Variety is the spice of life, they say, and this show is a testament to that concept. But back to this episode, I'm such a huge fan of Brother Ali. I started out as a fan of his music back when I first heard his albums that he put out through Rhyme Sayers starting in the early 2000s. He's a gifted lyricist. He's an impassioned performer and writer, and he has such a unique story and perspective to share with the world from just you know, just the stories of his ascent in the incredible independent underground scene that was really emerging in the Midwest, particularly at the turn of the century. You know, he has his whole story and perspective as an albino man, his relationship with both hip hop as well as Islam and his devotion to both practices and ways of life. I've seen him perform many a time, and he's an absolute MC in the traditional sense of the word on stage. I've seen him do radio freestyles. I'm thinking of, uh, of Sway in the Morning's Five Fingers of Death freestyle particularly. You need to check that out if you haven't seen that. And then, you know, what's been really cool for me in more recent years is to learn even more about the man behind the music. And you have to keep in mind, this is someone who has always really gone there in terms of being personal through his own music, but he's taken an even deeper dive with his podcast that he hosts, The Traveler's Podcast. I've learned so much, not just about his own story and his own philosophies, but a lot about the culture and practices of Islam, what life is like in other parts of the world, because Ali now lives in Istanbul, Turkey, and we talk about all that in this episode, but I just feel like the podcast platform is a place where Brother Ali is really thriving, so if you aren't already listening, you should really check out The Traveler's Podcast. 
And we also talk about some of the forthcoming music projects he's got in store in this episode, and he certainly doesn't seem to be hurting in that territory either. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope that you do too. I did have a slight issue with my microphone in the beginning of this recording, and it doesn't last very long, um, but I'm just pointing it out that there is a slight audio issue in the beginning, so my apologies for that. As always, I want to give a big shout out and thanks to the Questions Patreon for holding me down, and I invite you, if you're listening to the show and you enjoy the fruits of my labor in putting together a show for you each week, uh, I invite you to join the Patreon. It's only $5 a month. You can go to patreon.com slash thequestionshiphop or hit the link in the show description. As a member of the Patreon, you get early access to episodes, bonus content that doesn't always make it into the episodes, playlists, input on future episodes, and you join a relatively small but very dope collective of fellow rap enthusiasts where we just, you know, sort of talk about topics and exchange ideas and songs and all of that stuff. I, I don't have the largest following over there, and I'd love to see these numbers grow so I can continue to give this show the time and the energy that it needs and that I think it deserves. So thank you ev- again to everyone who is a member of the Patreon. Really appreciate all of you. And so we will dive right into it. This is a brand new episode of the podcast. It's a Can't Knock the Shuffle with special guest, Brother Ali. Who did it first? Who did it best? Who did it worst? That's the question. Who rapping there? That remix and what happened when? That's the question. Hmm. And if you ain't know what needs, then my guys knowin' what you need Some answers to the questions I'll, I'll do the introduction and then I'll do this spiel Because I, I don't like when I do long intros and like people are like, oh, the guest is just sitting here So I have Brother Ali on the show, he's making his second, uh, his second appearance, uh, this time in shuffle format Ali, how are you, sir? I'm great. I'm great, man. I'm happy to be here. I, you know, you're somebody who, for the longest time, your existence in my life was music. So I would, I knew you through your music. I knew, you know, your your narrative that you provided in your songs. I'd seen you live, and I knew that you were, you know, an incredible live performer. And now it's interesting because as I was gearing up to do this. I have more Brother Ali thoughts in my like landscape of my head than I ever have before because of the Travelers podcast. And I've told you this before, and we, we've sort of sidebarred about this, but um, I think that you are great for this format. I, I, you know, I just think that it's such, a, it's such a great fit. And in a lot of the same ways that you have been personal and revelatory and insightful through your music. I feel like I'm getting that tenfold through a weekly podcast with you. So I just am curious now because you've been doing, how long has the podcast been? You're like 50 something episodes in, right? Yeah, it's just a little over a year. So we're just about, we're just trying to figure out like how do we mark the one year mark, but it has been a full year and we, we've done an episode every week. And the first week we had two episodes. So we're like 55 or something episodes in. Yeah. So my, my question is, 
what space does podcasting hold for you now? Do you feel like it's an extension of what you were doing with music before? Do you think feel like it's like scratching an itch that maybe was hinted at with music that you that you weren't able to do? I'm so interested in that because again, like I feel like it's such a natural fit for your personality and your voice and um, everything that you share as a, as a human being. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, thank you, and you're a huge inspiration for me, and your encouragement has always meant a lot to me, and you're somebody that I really look to, and I think you and I have very, like, the areas where I tend to be a little stronger are are the opposite end of where you tend to be a little stronger, and so I think, like, we're really good, you know, <laughs> uh, encouragements for each other, but yeah, I mean, for me, I come into this thing through culture, you know, to me, when when music is separated from culture, there's a kind of t- there's a type of colonialism that's happening there that I think is really damaging, you know, and you can have music that's not representative of culture. But music is comes out of culture. It's part of culture. And culture is, of course, the context and the meaning and the lives and that, that weave it all together and make it possible. And to me, that's always been the good stuff, like the music is just the way that I express, you know, inside of this kind of cultural landscape. And so to me, it's always been about the human connections and the connection to meaning and virtue. That's what really gives it its life, you know? So to me, it's, it's always been about that. And so as soon as this pot, like Reggie Ose, rest in peace, who was a dear friend of mine, Mm. um, you know, the, when I saw him do the, the, his podcast, Combat Jack Show, it was like, man, that's what's possible here. You know, so I've always wanted to jump in. And then I reconnected with my first DJ, BK1, who I built my touring career with. Mm. We we built it together. And so he's my partner on the podcast. And then since actually leaving the road, he went on to build a radio station and to work with NPR and to advise NPR. Oh, and wow. so it's just perfect. Like what he did in the 10 years after we he left the road was just like, man, it's just so perfect for us to come together and do the podcast thing together too. Yeah, it was setting it up for that. And it, it's it's crazy for me as a listener. And I feel like my you know age and progression probably has to do with this, but I kind of am in a space now and I never would have been able to predict this where I kind of get more geeked over podcasts than music, which like hurts my soul to like, as a listener, you know what I mean? Like I'm sometimes more interested to be like, oh, you know, the the way that podcasts are consumed, it like I, I sometimes have more of an excitement around that than, than music. Obviously they fulfill, they check different boxes, but you know, I don't think that like 20 year old me, I wasn't listening to like talk radio, which I guess is like the closest analog to what the podcasting space is. Um, so yeah, it's, it's interesting to see, but like, I wonder, does, does getting your, your voice amplified and having the conversations that you have with podcasting, how has that affected your relationship with making music? Yeah. I mean, it takes a lot of time and it, it does give me a sort of like a connection and an outlet that sometimes I wonder, like, you know, am I scratching this itch when, I mean, honestly, you know, I've been given the gift of music and I've spent a lot of time really honing it. Whereas with podcasting, I'm one year old. I'm like a one-year-old. But in, mm-hmm. you know, in, in music, in rhyming and making beats and stuff, I'm, you know, in real life, I'm, you know, in my 40s. But in terms of creating music, I'm 30 years into that, you know. And and actually, um, it's interesting, Dave Chappelle had advice for Kanye and for Kwali. He gave them both the same advice. 
And I was there. And so I feel like I, I, I understood it also that this is good for all of us. But he was telling Kwali and Kanye, whatever you want to say, say it in music, because that's going to be your best way. And all these opinions you have and all these arguments you have, if you put them in music, we'll all enjoy them. Whereas when you say them outside of the framework of music, it can be a little tricky. You know, that's how Dave talks. You know, that can be a little challenging. And, you know, but he said, if you put it in music, that's your superpower. And so I wonder that sometimes, like if I was to just make music about all this stuff, would I be doing myself in the world more of a service? But I'm talking no matter what. I did listen to talk radio and I've always listened to hours of lectures and sermons and I'm in love with speaking, like myself and other people. And so all of my friends got interesting, unique voices. Um, so, you know, to me, it all it all is part of the same the same ocean of just people connecting with each other by speaking. I'm really um, obsessed with speaking. Yeah. Also, there's no rule that says if you talk about something on a podcast, you can't later do a song about it either. In many ways, you know, the podcast can be like the incubator for uh, a song idea or, you know, an inspiration that you can draw from later. So, yeah. And I've seen comedians do that. Comedians are the best for podcasts. I think they're really great in the podcast space. Like they kind of own the podcast space, in my opinion. And um you start to get some sense of who the person is. And then also you can, if you listen to certain comedians podcasts, you can hear them develop at least the, the ideas for jokes and for bits and things that come out later. Yes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and I have been making music this whole time. I actually have, I have three projects in the works mm -hmm. and I feel like all of them are informed and, and inspired and, have been developed through the podcast thing too. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so we're going to dive into the concept here. We ran your entire catalog. It's over 200 songs. I'm talking LPs, EPs, mixtapes, collaborations through a random generator. We've got seven songs here pulled up. So we're going to take a, you know, trip through your catalog if you're ready to do that. Well, yeah, I'm so happy to do it. <laughs> Awesome. So the first song that we pulled up is from 2004. It's from uh, the Champion EP, and the song is called Self Talk. My people, I stand before you as a man with more true shit than he knows what to do with. I give it all to you long as you can promise me this. When it's time, you will ball up a fist like this. Me and Anthony, we fill all the gaps, standing proud of what we made, regardless what happens. And I sing off key. One thing you should never do is diss Ali. Cause motherfucker, there ain't nothing rougher than trying to climb from the rug you get swept under. I can run through every one of your blunders. Mistake number one is that. Do you go back and listen to a lot of your stuff? What's your relationship with your own music? I think most artists, like it's normal that we listen to it a lot while we're working on it. We listen to it ad nauseum, probably when we're working on it. And then there's a long period where we don't want to listen to it. Uh, and then for songs that you perform, you almost always like they take on a whole life. They continue to to grow. And so there's a way that you perform the song that's that's a lot of times really different from the record. And that's one of the songs that I do perform a lot. And then a lot of times when I'm working on other music, I'll go back and listen to my old. So if like if I'm working on a new album, I'll go listen to the other ones just to kind of revisit it. 
but I don't like to just randomly hear my music. Um, in Minneapolis a lot, I would go into restaurants and people would be like, oh, brother, are these here? So they would just start playing my music. And it's really uncomfortable. I really don't like it. Then there are other times I listen to, I, I, I like to lo- listen to the projects that weren't as well received or, or celebrated or lauded, mm. just so I can remind myself that like, no, this is dope. Like, I this is a great album. I know it didn't get the attention that the other ones did, but this is dope. So it, it just depends on where my ego is at in the in any given moment. Yeah, that makes sense. So with self-taught, this is you said it's a song that you know still lives in your world in terms of live performances. And you know, I remember the Champion EP. This is still relatively early in your career in terms of being a national presence, right? So I know it came out after the uh, first Rhyme Sayers album, The Shadows on the Sun, and. What was where? Where was your head at? I imagine in, in hearing like a song like this, it's definitely got that hungry MC vibe. Like you were, you were definitely there to sort of show and prove and staking a claim for yourself. What are your thoughts when you kind of think back to this song and that era of your career? It meant a lot. Like so, I wrote this song on the road, actually, on my first tour. So when I wrote the first verse, anyway, or part of this song. Um, I was on the God Loves Ugly tour with Blueprint and Atmosphere and Merce and Mr. Dibbs and BK1 and Jaybird. So th- that was the tour crew. And I was on that tour, but uh, Shadows on the Sun hadn't come out yet. I recorded it. It was done, but it wasn't out yet. And so I'm, I'm on this this tour and like it was just such a life changing thing for all of us. I think if you talk to anybody that was on that tour, that was a life changing thing. And it also was it, it had a major impact on our genre of music and our circle of artists. So people were touring. Living Legends was certainly touring and others. But when that tour happened, that was the time when underground independent hip hop artists started going to. Oklahoma City and started to go to, you know, Omaha and really treat those places like important places where you could build a career by connecting with a fan base and listeners that would support you for life. So Def Jux hadn't done that yet. And Tech Nine, you know, was starting around the same time doing a similar thing. But I mean, that approach ended up informing artists like um, Wiz Khalifa and, and Macklemore and Mac Miller and so many others, p- people that came along after, you know, that 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 did that. So it was such a huge thing. And it hadn't been done like that in hip hop before. So uh, Slug and I were really bonding and we almost got matching tattoos that said self-taught. And as a Muslim, we're not allowed to have tattoos. So I don't have any tattoos. That would have been my only tattoo. And I think I told Slug that. And he was like, I think this is a bad idea. We were going to get the tattoos. And I was like, this would be my only one. It's haram. I'm not supposed to do it. But this is such a meaningful moment. And he said, because this is such a meaningful moment, you shouldn't make a decision like this in this moment. It'll always, he, and he was like, just make a song called Self-Taught and the song can live forever. So that's where the song came from. And then uh, during the course of that tour, we went to uh, New York and we went to LP's house because uh, there was, I think it was an RJD2 song maybe uh, that they were doing, or I can't remember. They were doing a remix for one of the big, I think it was a, a, um, a maybe a Soul Position song or an RJD2 song, but they were doing a remix for it. 
Oh, maybe and, Final Frontier, maybe? I feel like Final yeah, Frontier was, was one yeah, where a lot of those guys were on this. Yeah. yeah, we're here, the yeah. Final Frontier. And so in my head, I was there at that session. Vast Air is on it, and all these guys are on it. But I wasn't really known yet, and LP didn't really know what I could do at that time. And so they didn't ask me to get on the song, but I was sitting there just kind of constructing these rhymes in my head in case... You know, I wasn't going to overstep and ask, hey, can I be on this? But in case they asked me, I would have something to spit. Um, and so I, I constructed part of that. And then, yes, and then there's also a song on the, the Champion EP where I say the the some of the words from what Blueprint was saying on the final frontier. We move all the merch, CDs and shirts to you. This is a game, but for me, this is work. I punch in <laughs> when I step on the stage and get paid when my record is played. I, so I, some of what was on that song, I called it Love on Display. So there's parts of that EP that I wrote sitting in LP's basement as they were constructing that stuff. And then when I came back, none of it got used at that session. And Ant had that beat. And so that beat matched perfectly the tone of that song. And I don't think it's a particularly great song. It just kind of sounds like an independent underground rap song from 2004 or whenever it was. Um, the beat kind of sounds like a Just Blaze beat or something. And um, But people love the energy of that beat. I just think it's the energy of the song that people like. And so I do perform it almost every time I perform, I at least have, a lot of times I'll just do the first verse, but the energy of that song like really still connects with people. That's so interesting to sort of view it as effective for its purpose, even though subjectively you might, well, I, I would imagine that you've done so much work since then that it's gotta be probably hard for the older songs to stand up to the newer ones because you developed so much as a writer, you've developed so much as a performer, you know, as somebody, as an MC. So yeah, that, that, that's interesting that it still has that, that, you know, coveted spot in the set list, even though you might acknowledge it, it doesn't hit the boxes that you might hold uh, a song in present day to, you know? But in, in a way, it's also like, you know, what you hope to do is like capture the feeling of a moment. And it is it was very truthful and it really does capture the way that I felt coming home from that tour and just being like me and my friends. Are, we are amazing. What we're doing is really incredible and it's really powerful and it's really and that's why I said self-taught, because obviously we're taught by so many people. You know, but that specific thing we were doing in that moment isn't something that was being done in hip hop. And we were learning it and building it as we went. And so the fact that people are still attracted to the energy of that song, mm. it it makes a lot of sense to me in when I look at it through that lens. And so I, I have no problem performing it because it was true then, it's true now. And if people appreciate it, I'm happy. You know, I'm happy to be of service. Yeah. And man, what a time to your point, like just those rooms, those people you were you were sort of the 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 apprentice, I'm sure, in some of those rooms where like you had the bigger homies who were putting you on and showing you so much of the world and you guys were all discovering it together. I've just obviously anybody who listens to any of the recordings I do here where I talk to people knows that I'm they, they know that I'm fascinated by that whole era. I I hope somebody makes a, a book or a movie or, you know, something out of it because I just feel like there was so much potent talent. And to your point, there was no real predecessor or precedent to it in certain regards. Obviously, 
you were all taking a page from the artists who influenced you, but it was, it was just such a movement. I, and yeah, there's definitely nostalgia on my part as well, because that was like such a pivotal time in my life as a, as becoming an adult and a listener and a, and a music maker and a music appreciator. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm, could hear stories about that forever because it's just such a special time. It really is. And it was mostly uncaptured and documented. It's mostly unknown. Like, unless you were in those rooms, like you said, you know, unless you were, you know, in Boston, you know, when me and Immortal Technique like co-headlined at the Paradise, like there's moments that I know are moments for people that haven't been documented. I don't even know who would be qualified to do that. But somebody really, really should. And I, it's one of the things you do on your shows, your multiple podcasts. And it's one of the things that I try to do, too, is like just talk to those people about those moments so that there's some type of record. You can kind of hear it in the music, I think. But there's so much about the electricity of that of that decade or so that 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 was really coming to life that I think is really important. And it's really good for people to be able to access it. Well, we're going to skip ahead a few decades to our next song, which is pulled from 2022. And it was a single, uh, and the song is called More Than This. I know there's got to be more than this In these boxy apartments and offices Scrambling to pay the bills and the mortgages Doesn't seem to be as deep as the story gets Posing, posting up all our performances Turn our loved ones into an audience For our political cause and accomplishments Whatever make them like, share and applaud for us That's all we trust But there's more than this Little one inch box that we're forced to fit To get a portrait Vibe, very, very laid back Very mature, you know Compared to the, the energy of the last song Which is yeah. totally a time capsule of that period This is not any less potent But definitely more relaxed i would say yeah so this one actually the so evidence produced it um it doesn't say that in the early <laughs> like in the early releases and the reason for that is that so me and evidence did a full album together um called secrets and escapes mm. uh the way that we made the record was that um, I was going through a rough time in my life and so was he. We both were going through like very difficult things. Like I was part of a community and I was like tied to a very public religious figure that I was really closely associated with. And I put all of my my eggs in this basket and I was like really riding for this movement. And I just had a really kind of like tragic ending of that relationship. Uh, with him and that community space was just in really rough shape. Anybody that knows me knows that that th these are the two streams in my life that really like come together in me and what I do. It's my spirituality and music. To me, they're the same thing. Hip hop and Islam overlap so much. Music and art and culture and spirituality and religion. All these things are so tied, closely tied. They're all about like people accessing the world of meaning together, and and finding ways to communicate it and practice it and and. You know, and I think the organizing activism has something to do with that. But so it was a really difficult time. Evidence was was going it was losing his wife, his partner, his son's mom. Uh, she was in hospice. And so I was on tour going like weaving back and forth around the West Coast. And I just started staying at Evidence House. 
and like we really were bonding and it was just really therapeutic for us because i think we're we're from such different worlds mm -hmm. like me coming in as this you know religious guy and ev is such a like hard, like original hip-hop b-boy a lot of weed you know what i'm saying a lot of that type of vibe so i think we're it, like for us to be it's an escape for us to be around each other because we're very different very very different people mm -hmm. but we love each other like crazy and we bond over music and you know vibe and stuff so I was going there for that reason. And then he's like, man, um, one of the days he was making a beat on uh, old school, um, you know, it was either the ASR 10 or the MPC. And while he's making the beat, I just started freestyling to it. And he's like, record that, just record that freestyle. And so we made this whole project of songs that he made the beat on the spot. I did the whole song just by thinking of a few bars and then recording it. And th that song that you just played was one of the first ones from me just hanging out at his house. So we got done with it and he goes, and, and we decided that we were going to make a full album. We finished and he goes, that is a very great Brother Ali song. It's a great Brother Ali song. It'll never come out. Um, it'll never be on an album. Whoa. That's not what we're doing. He's uh, like, if if I work with you, it can't sound like what you and Aunt did. It can't sound like Brother Ali. You have to be like, it's it's got to be something different. Evidence is like really, his opinions are really strong. Yeah. They are the truth to him. And it's there's a certain type of artist that that's why they're so dope. And he's like, absolutely not. This will never come out. So finally we got done with the project and I was like, can I have that song and just release it? And he's like, I, I told him, I won't even tell people that you produced it. <laughs> and he's like, okay, fine. So I kept asking him for the session and I asked and asked and asked. And finally I said, look, man, if you don't give me the session and like, let me put the mix this song, I'm just going to put it out. I'm just going to release the, the two track bounce from that session, from that day. And he's like, all right, fine. So he finally sent me the session and you know, we were able to to bring it together and stuff, but um it doesn't really you know, sound like an evidence beat either. No, you know? it doesn't. It sounds like Ant, and that's why he wouldn't do it. Because he's just so good at making music that he can make music that it sounds like old Kanye. And you hear in there I say I say prettiest people do the ugliest things. It's the type of jewel you spit before becoming a king. Hmm. You know, a little little a uh, little loving jab at Kanye you know um but yeah man I mean that 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 song means a lot to me it feels really good and it also reminds me of that time that me and Ev like had together when things were falling apart and we both in different ways just took a lot of solace and found a lot of comfort like we created a, a space for each other that was really soothing I think in that time so that that song always reminds me of that and so i didn't announce it when we put it out but when i talk about the song i always say that evidence made that beat but he also made that moment he allowed for that moment to happen this was i think one of the first releases that you put out uh after uh going out on your own you'd historically released you know all, most of the music that people know of yours through rhyme sayers uh what has that i, I know that like you haven't well, you you actually you have done a few projects that you you've released. Um, the the uh, was it the one brother one minute or uh, yeah brother minister Bro brother minister yeah uh, sorry it escaped me. Um, okay. 
you know, how has that process been? Because I imagine it's almost like graduating from school, I would imagine. You spend so much time in an infrastructure where there are things you probably loved about it, things that probably eventually get annoying as you find that you're outgrowing certain, you know, dynamics, and probably also things that you never thought about because you weren't, you know, being being signed to a label, particularly one as, you know, efficient as rhyme sayers and well oiled as rhyme sayers can be. Uh, I imagine that there's a lot of things as the artists, even though it is an independent hip hop label, and yes, like you know, the 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 artists in this genre are known to pull up their sleeves and you know get the work done. I imagine that just from some of the administrative side of things, it's a different experience to be doing it on your own versus you know through through the label. Yeah, yeah, uh, you know, it's 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 been a beautiful thing. It was a beautiful thing to you know, have done my early from, I mean, most of the career that people know me for was there and I still love everybody there. And I am who I am because of that situation. You know, Rhyme Series is like, it's kind of a few different things in one. Like when you say like, what is Rhyme Series? It's difficult to define. And it's, it, you know, there's the musical uh, connections and the fam and then the human connections and then the business. The musical connections are beautiful and rich and deep and real and come from their otherworldly. You know, the bonds of friendship are, are you know, uh, f- like uh, the hearts of human beings that come together through real time and real genuine experiences and doing, having really formative years together, you know. And then there's the business and the business is just a worldly thing. You know what right. I'm saying? So the thing that I changed was the business part that I just I eventually had a vision for how I wanted my career to go and what I wanted to look like. And I just figured like if if and it's pretty specific. And so I figured like if I want to do this, the this particular way, I should just do it myself. And so that's really what that decision was about, you know, and so. The music is still will never will always be for real. The um, the the bonds will always be for real, but the business side of things it it was really amazing for me at one point, and then it just wasn't, and it wasn't for kind of a while, for kind of a long time, hmm. and um, so making that decision was a really good one, and ultimately it is very similar to like moving out of your parents' house where you're like, man, this is all set up. I got my room. I got my stuff. I got, uh, you know, a full refrigerator. I got for people who had that experience, um, <laughs> you know, and then you leave and it's like, I don't have any of that stuff anymore, but I get to do things the way that I like to do. And I get to figure out who I am. And so th- those kind of projects, the brother minister project, it's like one minute self-produced freestyles, um, and then that was the first time that I released more, kind of more official music. And like I said, I have three or four projects coming really soon that are just different types of of projects. Um, so, you know, it's it's been a beautiful thing. And a, a lot of artists go through something very similar. And it's a learning process. And like, no, you're not going to be at this. You can't have the expectation that you're going to be in the same place without the team and machine that you were with there but it's worth it and it's it's okay it's great like not only is it not only is it okay you know like i think we pressed 500 copies of those sold them almost immediately um as opposed to the last thing i did on rhyme series i think sold 
10,000 the first week or something, mm. it, but it's, but it's fine. It's totally, it's beautiful, you know? And, um, yeah, man, I just, it, for, for anyone who is in any kind of situation, whether you're working at a job where there's benefits and all this stuff and you, but there's something inside saying, yes, this is a beautiful situation, but I also have a vision. If if you have a very strong vision for how to do things in a in a very specific way that come directly from your soul, it's a scary leap to make sometimes. But I think that that's the type of uh, of courage that's always rewarding. You know, I, I I think it's really important for people to do that, just to be able to say to ourselves that I trusted myself. I trusted that this wasn't a whim inside me, that this was something that really comes from the core of who I am. And I really, yeah. I'm, I'm very grateful that I did it. And I did it not with their help, but with their support. You know what I mean? Everything I've asked for, if I've said like, Hey, can I get the assets from this? Or can I get the photos from this? Or can I get this? Or, or they've always just been very supportive. You know, it was a very, really um, mostly beautiful transition too. Right. And I think that that probably can be chalked up to the fact that you said there were those other two components where it's a musical connection and a friendship. And it's not like you, you know, severed ties with a corporation that that was the only basis of your connection with them. And then it's like, well, we're not obligated to you anymore because that's not, you know, that's our, our business relationship has ended. So that's definitely a beautiful part of that transition as well. Um, you know, lyrically speaking, I feel like the song is pretty straightforward, but were there particular experiences that sort of influenced you in writing the this song more than this? Yeah. Um, you know, I started, I started doing a lot of traveling around the world and not like luxurious traveling. Um, you know, so like when my family travels, we go to places like the Gambia, West Africa, where like you could stay in a really nice hotel if you want. Um, but it's not, you know, the, the real experience of being with people and experiencing like life in a different way, you know, and we go for like I go there for long periods and, you know, and and uh, Istanbul was like that, too. You know, and we ended up moving during the pandemic. It's like we're either going to move to the Gambia or Istanbul. And it was really I could have flipped a coin. We ended up doing Istanbul. But, you know, really being able to go and travel and experience life, you just realize like more so in the Gambia and other places that I've been to, like these people don't have like in, in the West or in first nation, first world nations or whatever you want to call them company countries that have a lot of material resources. And usually it's because they're stealing the actual material resource, you know, natural resources from other places and human resources and other, but you know, where those people are all competing for stuff that they think is going to make them happy. And and sometimes they're actually excelling, but it's not like it doesn't, that stuff actually doesn't give you like really being connected to the world of meaning and, and having real deep bonds with each other is what's really fulfilling to the soul. And the soul ultimately needs to be connected to the world of meaning. And no matter what you get, you cannot uh, replace that. And a lot of times, in these countries, we're given this narrative that in order to achieve that, you actually have to betray your soul. Mm. And that's the way it's set up. And I've seen that happen more times than not. Whenever one of my friends just sticks to their guns and they make it, someone like an LP 
you know, it's like LP has been the same person and has basically made some version of the same music his entire career. Like when he got with Killer Mike, that's exactly what he did with Vast Air. That's exactly what he did, uh, you know, a hundred other times with Danny Brown or Mr. Esquire. You know what I mean? It's LP saying like, man, bringing his very particular type of production and looking at someone and saying like, no, these black people are geniuses. You know what I mean? And if and and the contrasting world of these things, and also I'm dope. It's like these are the two truths that LP is like, you can act like I'm not dope because I'm a white dude, I'm a Jewish cat from, you know what I'm saying? And I don't wear the clothes you're supposed to wear. And I make these like really kind of like dusty beats and stuff, but I'm ill. I'm ill tra- even by traditional hip hop standards. I am am I'm I'm EPMD. You know what I'm saying? And then also on the other side, like for the nerdy, you know, uh, hipster hip hop writers and stuff to be like, no, Killer Mike is actually an intellectual. You might not see him that way, but he is. And so when you bring these two worlds together, that's what it shows on both sides. You know, it shows like how very funky and dope and hip hop LP is. And it shows how intellectual Killer Mike is. Not that either one of them needed that, but when you bring that thing together. So when LP, someone like LP and Mike, when they make it just by doing what they've always done, it's beautiful because it's so rare. You usually are betraying your soul in some kind of level or your soul was never that rooted to begin with when you become very successful. And so going to other places in the world really reminds me of that. And it really confirms and affirms and, uh, strengthens me in that way you know so a lot of what i'm saying in that song is like it's try it's 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 a very simple it's simplistic on purpose because it's like there's more than this there's more than social media it seems like less they don't have less people in the gambia don't have less they have more and because of the fact that the heart is alive and the soul is connected and the the and the human beings are connected and bonded based on meaning, you know. Yeah, a hundred percent. All right, we're gonna move on to the next song. It is from Morning in America and Dreaming in Color, 2012, and the song is called Namesake. <laughs> I was raised with the raised fist, Angela Davis, summer 68 Olympics, train banging your wings against the cage in the events you became cageless, the vein of my existence is to resist, back never bent, below never relent, of all light shown, I'm a glimmering glint, was named after a king and I missed the great test, changed the world in the ring with his fist, more so with the gift when it rang from his lips, big I mean, okay, so I guess there's two angles, at least that I can think of, we can take about this. One is, this is a specific type of songwriting. You know, you're 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 taking on somebody else's story, and also you're doing it in a brand new type of collaborative partnership uh, with Jake One, who you know was a new producer for you to work with after having worked pretty exclusively with Ant from Atmosphere. Yeah. Um, but I see you smiling already at this song. So what, 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 what comes to your mind when you hear this one? It just makes me so happy. Like, I'm so happy that song exists because so anytime, yeah, it's technically a third person story, but I always tell all stories through my experience of like loving the person or admiring the person or whatever it is, you know? And so 
Yeah, everything about this one makes me so happy. Also, because when I made it, it didn't work live at first. And at some point, I just put it um, in between certain songs in the set, and it started to really, really work. And that makes me really happy. So, like, it's part of my live set now. So when I became, when I was 13, I met KRS-One. He did a lecture tour, and I went to the lecture tour. I asked him a question. He brought me on stage. He told me read uh, the autobiography of Malcolm X. I did. It made me want to be a Muslim, became a Muslim, became an artist, and... Um, so when I was being offered names, so we're t- there's talk about, so what will your name be? You don't have to change your name when you become Muslim, but I wanted to. And so somebody brought up Ali, and that was because of the Prophet Muhammad's cousin, peace be upon the Prophet Muhammad, uh, be well pleased with his cousin, Ali. So everybody in the world named Ali is named after this one man. Uh, and But it appealed to me because of how much I loved Muhammad Ali. Mm. So in my mind, I ex- accepted that name because it's Muhammad Ali's name. I didn't even know about the the Prophet Muhammad's cousin Ali, Imam Ali. I didn't even know about him yet. So I took that name because of Muhammad Ali. And so this particular song is called Namesake because it's about Muhammad Ali, but it's about a, a lesser known. Everybody knows that Muhammad Ali walked away from boxing because of the fact that he wouldn't get drafted. And the Muslims love to tell that story. The non-Black Muslims tell that story because they're like, look at the courage that Islam gave this person. Look at the nobility that Islam gave this person. And it did. But also Muhammad Ali did that before he was Muslim. He did that, um, you know, when he was young in 1960, I think it was, he went to the Olympics in Rome uh, as an amateur and he was so afraid to get on the plane. Like he wouldn't, he didn't want to get on the plane. So he was terrified of airplanes. So he said like, can I take a boat? And they're like, no, you're going to mess up your training. It's going to take two weeks to get there on a boat. Like that's how KRS-One gets to Europe. Like, no. So he said, you have to get on a plane. So he went to the army surplus store and bought a parachute and wore it on the plane because <laughs> <laughs> he was so terrified. And he got there and he went to Rome and he won the gold medal. He beat everybody. He's my, he's got, at that time he was Cassius Clay, but he's like the greatest, you know, beat everybody. He stood there in Rome. The American flag went up. They played the national anthem. Everybody had to be quiet. And he came back to Louisville and he was able and and he was able to wear his gold medal and go places that he wasn't allowed to go before because of segregation and so he went to restaurants and he went everywhere and he was like the he was like the unofficial mayor of Louisville and he remained that up until he passed away he's still that so he'll go in all these restaurants and stuff and he didn't know that he was going to go on to be the most famous person and the greatest champion that there ever was in any sport, the greatest athlete of, of, of modern times. He didn't know any of that. In his mind, this is the great, this might be the greatest thing that ever happens to him. And he used to wear his gold medal in the shower. He used to sleep with it on like all the time. So uh, he was traveling for something and his mother went to one of those segregated restaurants that that they, she was able to go with him with the, the medal and they refused her. Like they wouldn't let her in. They're like, I'm sorry, we don't serve colored people here. Da, da, da. And Muhammad Ali was so incensed by that, that he's like, I did all of this for America and our people have done all of this for America. And if this medal doesn't mean that my people are free, if it's just for me personally, I don't want it. 
I don't want to have a level of notoriety and a level of freedom and a level of just acknowledgement of my humanity that doesn't apply to my people. And so this the legend is that he took his medal off and threw it in the Ohio River. Mm. And his daughters say, May May and like his daughters that say that like uh we searched everything. Like they say when their father died, they look through all of his stuff. And it's because they're like, you know, he loves to tell stories. So they searched all this stuff. Nobody found the medal. Nobody uh-huh. found that gold medal. All signs point to this person that seems egotistical, you know, talking about how amazing he is and all this stuff, that genuinely at 18 years old, threw the greatest accomplishment of his life in the water because he didn't want an accomplishment that was only for him. I mean, this is like a this is a modern saint. This is a modern saintly figure, you know. And so I took that name and I wear this name because of him. And I remember talking to Imam Zaid Shakir, who was one of Muhammad Ali's spiritual advisors, especially towards the end of his life. He was on the pot, he was on the Travelers podcast, and he's somebody that we know and love. And I was asking Imam Zaid one time just about like events that I should be part of or not be part of, sponsorships I should take or not take. And he said, well, always remember that your name is Brother Ali because of Imam Ali and Muhammad Ali. And so don't put their, don't put the name Ali where it doesn't belong. Mm. So it's like, yeah, is it is it halal? Like, is it okay for as a Muslim to be sponsored by Monster Energy or something? Yeah, technically. But he said, would Imam Ali do that? And would Muhammad Ali do that? No, they wouldn't do that. You know right. what I mean? They they wouldn't do that. And so that name just means so much to me, you know, and then making that song with Jake One was such a beautiful thing. And the fact that it took years for the fans to like allow me to do that song on stage. And so now every night when we do it, um, it's a celebration for Muhammad Ali. And it's a it's a remembrance of him, you know. And just what his what his legacy means, like the fact that that's not a person from scripture, but that's a scripture level story, in my opinion. Right. Like he lived in the same time as us. We breathed the same air and drank the same water as Muhammad Ali. So when you say like they wouldn't they wouldn't let you do it, it just wasn't really working in a live setting. Like, was it not getting the reaction or the response that you sort of felt it would? Because another thing that's interesting and I think notable about your position in music is that you do use your platform to tell stories and share information that would seem to be inherently like it's it's in it's within the wheelhouse. If, you, if you're into this music, which comes from this culture, then there are certain things that if you don't already know about or if the information hasn't been passed along to you, this would be useful. This would be interesting. However, this is often not the case, specifically, it, just to speak in frank terms, a lot of uh, people who identify as white or not black in a in a black art form or culture, they aren't necessarily uh, using that to speak to audiences that, you know, somebody you, you mentioned in the middle of like, you know, Kansas City or wherever in the Midwest, they might not have the outlets or the resources or the reason even in their immediate life to know about these specific stories about somebody like Muhammad Ali. 
Yeah. Yes. Yes. I mean, it's the, yeah. so, I mean, I'm albino and my parents are white. My parents are from Madison. I was raised in the, in the Midwest and, you know, my family had a lot of challenges and things like that, just like everybody else. And I was really taught how to live life by black people. And there's also a thing where both where people think albinos are black, white people, there are white people that think that, and there are black people that think that it's actually the majority. And so I think the combination of the way that I was raised from the time I was a little kid, five, six, seven years old, um, you know, that also my parents, my family split up a lot. There was addiction, um, you know, suicide and things like that. And moving from city to city and all this kind of stuff, that was really the environment that made me who I am and made life livable for me. Along with that, along with like living in those homes and being raised by people and uh, disciplined by them and, you know, all this stuff. Along with that, music became part of it. So that's why I said, like, it's this is all one stream to me. Like, I didn't learn about rap music from MTV Raps or from the radio or from TV or like, I, this all is like, you know, Mahalia Jackson and Curtis Mayfield and uh, West African, like, this is all the same thing to me. Uh, and that's the truth, uh, the reality of it. And white people in general were not my friend group and they were not very kind to me. It wasn't everybody. There's probably just a few people. But the way that it felt to me growing up is like white people have no use for me or they dislike me. And these people, and it's, of course, wasn't all black people that were caring for me and living life with me either. But uh, white people don't like me and white people and this and our country is lying about what black people are. And it's still very much the case, even in the culture, even in culture, you know. Um, so when I first started making music, it was in an all black context, which, you know, hip hop was all black and not even all black people were into hip hop. Like, you know, uh, respectable black people didn't like hip hop. They shunned it. They wouldn't play it on black stations. Even it was like counterculture about that. Yeah. yeah. Even within the even within black culture, uh, it was not revered and respected. The, our parents didn't like it. Um, you know, successful black people that were going to go to college and own their own businesses, they didn't like it. And so that was the environment. So it's, it's, it was uh, an adjustment period for me when I first started touring, especially because I was, I was touring in two different worlds. So like I started touring with atmosphere and that audience is almost entirely white. Um, and then also very early on the artists, the, the really traditionally legendary artists that identify with Islam, they also took me on tour really early too. So I toured with Brand Nubian and Rakim and Big Daddy Kane and Public Enemy and MF Doom and Sean Price. Like those people also have always treated me like I'm their child. Like they have always rode for me. So I was like in these two worlds, the, the, when I'm, you know, touring with Brand Nubian, I was well, I had to earn it. It was, you know, and, and I did. And we earned it every night. Me and BK earned it every single night. But I had to earn it. In the atmosphere of the world, though, in the white world, they were like, you're the guy we've always been waiting for. So there's no, like, you still got to earn it, but it's not the same, you know? So when I started headlining and doing my own shows and all this stuff, the people that were populating my shows are white. And they didn't start listening to hip hop music mostly until people that look like them started doing it. Mm. 
Because it's like, oh, that's for someone else. That's not mine. That's, you know, and then suddenly you got Aesop Rock, who's one of the dopest of all time. You got Atmosphere, some of the most incredible rap music. And, you know, like these people are incredible. I already spoke about LP, you know, and there's so many of them, Grouch and Eli and all these people. And they're beautiful and they're dope. And they come out of the context of being the only white guy in a black in a in black rooms. Like Aesop Rock did not learn to rap in the, you know, in the back of a car with a bunch of other white guys. You do not rhyme like that unless you are the guy and you better you got three bars to make us know that you deserve to have, hold this mic. Otherwise, you can forget it. And so that's why Aesop Rock is Aesop Rock. That's why, you know. Um, so these people now there's this whole they all kind of came emerged around the same time and so now there's a a mostly white uh, strand or like um, like a wing subgenre of underground music and that was really weird for me right and I didn't know how to feel about it and I was angry about it almost and you know and Merce helped me uh, I self divine from the Micronauts. Shaka helped me understand it. Shaka most clearly, like Shaka pulled me to the side and was like, two things. Number one, people are assuming you're black, and if you don't correct them, it's gonna look like you lied. And so on my next album, I spoke about it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. The best as best I could, and I'm still trying to figure out how to talk about this stuff. The other thing he said is, this is actually a good thing though, because all of this training that you've gotten received all your life. Now you have direct access to a bunch of white people that are here for sincere reasons. They're not here for superficial reasons. It's not like you're handsome. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's not like you, it's not, it's not aspirational in a, in a material sense. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's different from, you know, some they're of there for the music. They're there for the music. They're there for the music and they're there for the real heart connection. Right. Like, you know what I mean? They, they, you know, Shaka said, any people that listen to you, they want to know. They have a sense that, you know, stuff that they don't know. And so it's been a lot of me playing and, and, and trying different formulas for introducing what I know. Like, if I'm going to be here, I'm going to tell the truth. And that's going to be one of the like the price of admission for listening to me is all of this stuff that comes with it. And I think that numbers wise, it, it hurt me. In certain ways, you know what I mean? Materially, it, it probably hurt me. Like I went on TV, they invited me to come on, you know, all the big TV shows, Conan O'Brien and um, uh, the one that The Roots are on. Fallon? Yeah, I did yeah. Fallon with The Roots and all this stuff. And like I did Uncle Sam Goddamn and I did all these these kinds of songs, you know, because like that's what I do. And I made those choices, you know. And the people are like, hey, yeah, we're not going you're not going to get invited back. That's not what you're, that's not what these shows are for. That's not yeah. what, you know. Um, and I know that there are people, especially on morning in America, the cover was me doing the Muslim prayer on the American flag. I mean, I got all sorts of threats and people told me I, I can't anymore. I can't listen to you anymore. And, uh, you know, um, but it's such a beautiful thing to be able to live like you, to be you, <laughs> You know, and it's just like, that's all there's going to be. So whatever comes along with that, like, I would rather be this guy than, you know, there there are people that have done a version of what we do and have gone way farther, you know, in terms of business and have the accolades and all that, have all this stuff. 
when I'm walking around in myself, I am so much happier being this person. And I don't have the ability to be that person. But then anytime I'm around them, they know I can sense in those people that they know that there's there's some there's some sacrifices and some compromises that they made that they're in the room with somebody that didn't make that sacrifice and that compromise. And I know that I I'm a I'm a I'm I'm a uh I'm a I'm a thorn in the side of some of those people. And let's keep it honest, like some of those people whose successes benefited from that suppression of the truth or that compromise, it, you know, we're, we we don't have to name names, but it does, it fades away, you know, like, and then what are you left with after the, after that wave or that ride goes, then you're sort of like, well, you, it's not there anymore. And what was the connection that you were making with people? It was based on something that was less than authentic. So that doesn't really leave you with much because it's like when, uh, it's like the day lolly, like everybody cools off from being hot. It's about if you can handle being cold or not. It's probably a lot harder to be cold when you know that like you got hot from compromise and from inauthenticity. And that you do not have the same respect. Right. I wouldn't trade any award. There's no number of dollars. There's no uh, fly house. There's no private jet. There's no, there's none of that that I would trade with the, with, with knowing that Doom passed away and me and Doom made Salat together in, in, in South Africa and Sean, Sean Price passed away. And on that mixtape that came out, Sean Price spit bars that I wrote for him <laughs> when we were touring together in, uh, in um, Australia because of a, a real experience that we went through together. Cause I used to make, I, I used to tease him every day and I, I would like freestyle like Sean Price when we were together. And, uh, you know, and I would say his rhymes for him and he would get in the car and, you know, I would always be early and he would be late. And um, there's, there's bars on that purple mixtape that came out that like I wrote for him. I, like I said, him, and everybody died laughing. And I was like, he was like, I should really say that too. I should say that in one of my joints. I was like, please say it, please, <laughs> please, please. And he did. And I know that his intention was to show me after it came out and then he passed away. But, I, you know, or, or, you know, knowing that, that um, I, I may be the only person that Rakim co-signed that Rakim came out and said, here's an artist that you, the world should listen to. Mm. Or the fact that, you know, um, you know, it starts to feel like bragging and my, my ego does like it, but I'm just saying that to like the ability to call Chuck D at any moment and, you know, to have that, that real thing, you know, that real bond, um, you know, these are things that, um, or like when Dave from Dela passed away, you know, to have that connection, to have that real connection that like we didn't just see each other and pass each other like that means something or the fact, you know, just it, yeah, it's there's a level of like the ego like that there could be bragging. But I'm saying the fact that when these people die, me and Yasin Bey cry on the phone together, that is something that I wouldn't trade. I wouldn't trade. And I know people who are successful and they can buy features. And there are certain people that um, there are certain there's a way of being a white artist 
where you bypass the culture and you go to the white fans and the white fans make you rich and famous. And then you've got, you've got money and fame to use as currency to try to buy your way back in. Mm. And people will accept that money and fame because structurally it's been kept away from them. And it's, it wasn't yours anyway, you know, but right. like you said, when that, when that fame and that money dries up to a certain degree, then you're just left with, you know, where's the where's the world of meaning and our bodies die so no matter what you get you die and you're just left with what you meant and muhammad ali when he was doing his most amazing things was a poor man he couldn't feed his family when muhammad ali was both in both of those instances he was poor you know what i'm saying and when muhammad ali died he had a dream he shared with our teachers that he had a dream uh, he actually shared with his daughter that he he was running he was running laps around the city of Louisville and he went through the whole city and he you know ran around the whole city and everybody came outside to greet him and he said that at the end of it he ended in the cemetery and he walks into the door the gates of the cemetery and the the gates close behind him and all those people are on the other ends of the gates. And he said that once he got inside, he thought he was going to go in the ground, but he actually flew. Mm. There was a hole and he was about to go into And instead of going into the ground, he actually flew. And for the people that were around for his, his service, they know that everybody came out in the whole city of Louisville, Kentucky, white, black, and other, you know, everybody came out and they did a lap with his, with his, uh, you know, in, in, in with his body. And then they took him to the, you know, and they, his body is in that hole. But Muhammad Ali is not dead. Muhammad Ali is more alive than most of us, the 99% of the people living right now. He's more alive because it's really about meaning. Like, that's what it's really about, you know. So, you know, to to just tie it all together with that story, you know, that ultimately what that's ultimately what I, what keeps me wanting to do this and the podcasting and anything else I do is really trying to get to what it all means. All right. So we're going to move on to song number four. Uh, it's a feature actually from 2015. It is a song with abstract rude and slug from atmosphere. And it is called the solution. Making a contribution. So that makes me a solution. I was raised on the doctrine of the honorable Elijah Muhammad Super late pass for me because I actually only discovered this song last year. Uh, and so when it came up randomly in the algorithm, I was delighted because this song still feels very new to me, despite the fact that it's like eight years old. Um, can we talk about patterns, sir? Like, and I'm speaking specifically about your verse. What was going on here? Like this is, and listen, it's not like you're a slouch on your other songs, but this song, when I heard it, I was like, Ali is flipping like so many styles and cadences in this verse that it's crazy. And I mean, I'm singing your praises right now, like much, much props and much respect, but like 
is that just like the ignition that happens when you're like, all right, I'm on a song with two other vets in this, you know, in this genre that you had to come out and like, you know, swing on them. Jeez. It's a couple of things. So like, yeah, like the, the competitive, like, you know, hip hopper in me always wants to, whenever I'm on a song with somebody else, I want to at the very least hang with them. And I would like to, I'm like, I'm trying to win. I'm trying to, because ultimately the song wins, the culture wins, we all win. You know what I mean? But there's that we're, dri- we're driven by, by a loving, friendly, competitive spirit. So slug, I'm like, okay, me and slug have already done this. I'm, but man, that abstract root is a special being, you know what I'm saying? And so part of it was just, I know I'm on a song with abstract root. I got to, I got to show and prove, you know what I mean? But then also like doing, doing songs with other artists, that beat also, like, I'm, I'm not going to come in rhyming the same way. So that beat just gave me an opportunity to, to just sit in it a different way. Um, so yeah, the, the patterns, the other cool thing about that one is that that recently got, um, added to a video game. I can't remember which one. I think it's a baseball game I saw or something. It's like a major league baseball or or I, I saw it as well when I was just doing some like, you know, recon after the songs got randomly selected, which that's always great too, to have, you know, a song have second life in that way. And what's dope to me is at the beginning, I said, I, I shouted out the honorable Elijah Muhammad. (laughs) <laughs> so like the fact that like that's on a mainstream video game and especially baseball that's even more funny you know what not, i mean not, I remember not known it, for its alliance with the honorable <laughs> yeah man elijah muhammad it, so i'm just so happy you know um the honorable elijah muhammad's great grandson his name is sultan rahman muhammad and he is a classic so the nation of islam it doesn't have like the, there are a lot of their language and theology um, is not identical to what the rest of the world knows as Orthodox Islam. It's there's a lot of uniqueness there, and it's kind of controversial and whatever. Um, but he, but Sultan Rahman Muhammad is Elijah Muhammad's great grandson, who was also trained in the classical Islamic tradition, and he's one of my dearest friends. And I guess his son is like a big video game dude, but he doesn't play violent games. He plays sports games. Yeah. So he like his son. He's who I guess is the Honorable Elijah Muhammad's great-great-grandson uh, <laughs> was like playing this game. And Imam Sultan called me and he's like, yo, did you shout out the Honorable Elijah Muhammad in this game? And I'm like, yeah, man. So that, that was uh, that's one of my favorite things about that song. But man, Abstract Root is one of the great unsung, incredible, just geniuses of the culture, man. It's so yeah. great. You know, I'm curious. So... I grew up and and really came of age in South Florida. And so, you know, I was pretty geographically removed from a lot of the music that was coming out of Project Blood. And this is in a time that was kind of early internet as well. So it's not like, you know, the access was as great. And so it was later in my like early 20s that I started to broaden my, you know, understanding of the music that's out there and a lot of the stuff on the west coast you know i was more open-minded so i kind of took to it but a lot of my friends and people who had more uh well for lack of a better term we'll say mainstream or or you know new york centric um uh tastes this stuff was just too weird you know it was just like oh this is this is not even actual hip-hop you know a lot of them would say uh and which obviously that didn't resonate with me and i've you know 
gotten living in LA now, I'm, I'm even closer to a lot of that. And I was able last year to do a show with Abstract Root and Project Bloat and Freestyle Fellowship. And I was playing in the band with them. And it was like such an honor to do that. But I, I'm curious for you, where, where was the entry point to this, you know, uh, subgenre of West Coast, left coast music um, being in the Midwest, you know? Yeah, I mean, I've always been a little more East Coast. I've had an East Coast bias, you know, uh, in terms of hip hop. But I remember when um, when Boundaries came out, what we have into the boundaries. Blessed Allah that I found the key. That's how we be. That song to me was like, okay, it made it made it all make sense to me. We did play that song too, by the way. So I I was able to play that with it was like, like, what is happening right now? Yeah, that 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 was how I finally connected it. It was like, oh, these guys are doing jazz solos as right. hip hop artists. Oh, okay, it just made it make sense. I didn't really dive all the way in though until I became close with Idea. Mm. Rest in peace. Like Idea, his favorite MCs were Project Blow, Freestyle Fellowship, The Good Life, everybody associated with The Good Life. That was his favorite music. And so uh, one of the the main things that really made Idea rise to prominence was the Scribble Jam battle in 1999. Um, he got all the way to the end and peace was there. And so Mikey Idea, as like, I don't think he was 18. I think he was 17 years old, this little tiny skateboarder looking white boy battling a 27-year-old peace <laughs> who is like, He's the real thing in every respect. Like this guy is the real thing. And um and Mikey beat him, you know. And that and he won the championship and you know that was a major major thing. And then we came back next year and I actually beat IT script with him the next year, which was that and which was one of my big kind of like breakout moments in the Midwest hip hop world. So when I came when I first started really being around him he told me, he's like, I'm on a mission to make you understand how dope this subgenre of hip hop really is. And he's like, we'll just start with AC alone. Cause he's like, that's, you it's know, that's going to be the entrance point. So yeah. So obviously start listening to AC like regularly, but then, you know, as you start to be exposed and honestly, now I think my favorite of all of them might be Micah nine hmm. and Micah nine is incredible. Like, Micah Nine is one of the unsung, I think a lot of those guys, man, they do not get the credit they deserve. I'm glad that they got, this was like a, a Grammy nomination for them, just so that their their names could be acknowledged that the Grammys is really dope. But man, some of the most incredible genius hip hop music that's ever been made. It, speaking to the subject matter of the song, this is obviously very thematic. Is that kind of a treat for you when you get called in? And I assume that like the concept is already laid out and you're kind of plugging in because a lot of times when you're doing a feature, I, I know what it's like. It's like, yo, just spit a 16. It's like, well, OK, like, how do I fit into this? How is this going to be used in the context? I'm curious, like, you know, what that's like for you and how, you know, this song specifically was sort of planted in terms of concept. Yeah. Yeah, the concept was there. I mean, yeah, Abstract Root is, he's a really musical person, as I think anyone that knows him knows, um, you know, that he has a musical and like really holistic cultural tr vision for all of his stuff. So he knows how he wants it to sound. He can think in terms of, you know, constructing songs and arrangements and things like that. Um, and then also for the presentation, like 
you know, when he performs a song live, like he knows how his body's going to move when he, when he performs a song, like he's really special. And um, so, yeah, he came in, it was a fully developed concept. And then even the concept is like, that's not new ground concept wise. The solution means like, I've been the problem in my life. Now I have to be the solution in my life. Um, you know, that's accountability bordering on self-deprecation. You know what I'm saying? Like that's me and Slug and like our circle of friends. Like that's <laughs> that's what we do anyway. So theme-wise, it wasn't that hard to get with. It was right up my alley. Love it. Love it. All right, we're going to move on to the next song, and it is from 2019. It's from the Secrets and Escapes Al, or Secrets and Escape album, and it is called, it's the first song, it's called Abu Enzo. Grew up with a sanity, let me school you, sir. Baboons are sure to move on you if you unsure. Truth is elusive, you could loosen up to Lucifer. You don't survive where I've been. Half blind and migrant, different environments, without knowing the signs of violence. All that nonsense is not where I've been trying to go. But your boys has gotta know not to think the Idaho. If my eyes are closed and I start nodding slow, I ain't blow no kind of drill. I'm trying to get my drumsticks to rock and roll, leafing through the cosmos. Read it like so. You spoke about this a little bit, you know, you working with evidence where you were at in your life, where he was at, and sort of the desire to create something that was super different from what you had both done. And I know that this is. I think we've spoken about this before. For many reasons, probably, you know, not the least of which the time in which this was released and all of the global circumstances. This is kind of like the underdog, the the unsung uh, album in your career, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. And in I don't know if that's why, but it's one of my favorites, man. I I love making that album so much. I love I, lo I love everything about it. Yeah. That particular song, that's one of the first ones that we made. Maybe it's one of the first ones we made. And yeah, he made that beat and it was, I think, on the MPC, but he's like, I'm going to run it through the SP404 with with the compressor. Hmm. So he's like, we won't be able to mix the beat. It's just going to sound like what it sounds like coming out of this machine. It'd be two track. And I was like, all right, dope. And he's like, all right. So when you spit the rhyme, right, he's like, all right, imagine you're in you're in like a alley or you're in like a backstage room with people who are not your friends. Like you're back there with other people and like they, the you're by yourself and they might jump you. And you know what I'm saying? He's like, you're kind of looking down and like, you're kind of looking at your feet and you might not, you might have to fight your way out of here. And like, that's the vibe. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, cool. And so um, I had a, I had like a coffee and there's like the stir from the coffee and I had like the stir from the coffee in my mouth and I pulled the mic up and all, everything on this album I wrote like in my head in the moment, just a few bars at a time and record it. Think of a few bars, record those bars, think of a few bars, record. And like, yeah, I had the mic down and I'm like looking down and that whole kind of vibe. So that was happening. But then also Ev's son, Enzo, was like running around and yelling and like playing the instruments in Ev's studio and jumping on stuff and jumping on me. And you know what I mean? He's just a beautiful kid, man. Enzo is a really, really special guy. And anybody that knows him knows that. And um, so I'm, I'm like thinking of my bars and spitting them and Enzo would be like talking in the background. And so finally Ev was like, you know what? 
pulled up the same machine, the SP404, ran the mic through that with the delays and all the effects and stuff on it and just let Enzo do a pass of yelling and talking. And so you hear that all the way through the back of the whole thing. And then also, and Abu Enzo means the father of Enzo. Also, some of the lines that I say in the song are things that Enzo just said. <laughs> so I was like, if my eyes are closed and I start nodding slow, I ain't blowing no kind of drill. I'm trying to get my drumsticks to rock and roll. So Enzo's sitting there playing these like drums and evidence is like, hey man, can you he's like, Papa, can you just can you just give Uncle Ali, just let Uncle Ali say these four bars real quick? You know, he you just talk like Enzo, you just talk hip hop language to him. He speaks hip hop. That's his first language. <laughs> yeah. So he's like, man, I, I just got to spit four bars. Let me get these four bars off. He knows what four bars is. You know what I'm saying? So he'd be like, OK, just four bars. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like he knows those, you know, or he'll be like, dad, these hi-hats are stupid loud. You know what I mean? Like he's as a as a four year old. He knows that. Wow. So. He's sitting there playing the drums and he's like, yeah, dad, but I'm trying to get my drumsticks to rock and roll. And we're just <laughs> cracking up laughing. Like I'm trying to get my drumsticks to rock and roll. So like all that stuff made it into the song. And um, yeah. And so as we're going, it's like, this isn't going to be able to just be a dark song. It's going to have to get bright. So all the filters and stuff that he had on the first part, he ends up just bringing all the horns in and everything. So the song gets bright like halfway through and it all just happened in the moment, you know what I mean? So it's my least received album. Part of it is because we didn't market it and then the pandemic happened and whatever. But for me, I'm like, man, that was that's a real moment that just got captured, you know, for for forever. And my friend, my my friend Evidence is part of it, my who I love. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and Enzo is on there. And while that's happening, his mother is in hospice. His mother is literally in the last days of her life. Mm. But he's still a kid. You know what I mean? He's still a kid. And so he's going through everything. And he's got this hopeful, just kind of, you know, beauty about being a child. He doesn't fully grasp what's going on. You know what I mean? Um, so that's a, to me, that's what it's about such a snapshot and i love the story i love all of the sound design and producery type you know technical components to that and then also i find it interesting you know evidence kind of giving you that background coaching you producing you in the traditional sense of how to wrap it and i wonder if his identity as a producer and also a vocalist and mc and artist if that is the type of direction that you would expect from him versus like a jake or an ant where like their production style maybe is that different because they are more traditionally just beat makers instrumental like guys you know was was the was the hands-on approach that you got and the producing in that traditional sense from evidence kind of different in that way so it's interesting ant actually ant more than anything is a is an executive producer so like he really does produce like the after a while he stops, but <clears throat> he does coach early on because he's trying to get the the most essential secret you onto the song. So after a while, he starts for, for Slug, he's got certain music. For me, he's got certain music. After a while, he's like, if I give Ali this music, I already know what he's going to do and which version of himself he's going to be. So there was a lot of training early on. And then after a while, I didn't have to anymore. Then there's an in-between period where I was with Jake. 
and Jake was giving me beats, but in a lot of ways, I had a major hand in executive producing that record because Jake is more of a beat maker. And a lot of times, you know, he's working with Rick Ross and Drake and 50 Cent and he's not in the room. J. Cole, like he knows these guys, but he's not in the room constructing the song, Nipsey Hussle. You know, he's the, you know, he's the Jewish cat that makes dope ass beats. And, and, and whenever you hit him up, he's got 50 new beats. You know what I'm saying? In all these different styles. And like, and if you want a certain, if you want traditional classic hip hop, even in through a modern lens, that you go to him and he's always got 50 things ready for you to hear. So he, but he's not necessarily in the room crafting the songs. So he was just like, hey man, just rap. He's like, you're a dope rapper, do whatever you need to do. But when I hear the album with Jake One, vocally I'm overperforming. So there's like certain things I learned how to do with my voice to try to convey energy and drama. And I hear myself vocally overperforming because nobody's producing me, my vocals. Interesting. So like, you know what I mean? So when I got back with Ev, evidence was a lot of stripping away. Evidence was like, there's going to be no sad songs. There's going to be no sentimental songs. There's going to be no uh, cute uh, singing hooks. There's going to be none of the Brother Ali tricks. Yeah. And a lot of times he knew that for me, the way that I end a verse, I like I know how to like put this kind of storybook ending at the end of a song or a verse. So I would get to the point where I, I think I got four more bars to go and he would just get up and save the session because it's his computer. <laughs> like I'm recording myself, but he would just get up, save, close the session and and start playing records for a new beat. And I'd be like, no, I was just about to finish that. He's like, no, you are about to put some storybook ass ending on this thing. And you're about to make something that was raw and in the moment and turn it into this perfectly wrapped up thing. That was you're about to go. You're about to go corny. You are just at the precipice of corny. And I'm trust me, I did you a favor. And I just would have to roll with it. Wow. Yeah, I, man, I'm going to revisit that album because I, I really loved it, you know, when I've listened to it in the past. And I hope everybody listening right now also goes back and revisit it because it really is a special and very unique by design uh, entry into the catalog. Uh, we have two more songs left. So the penultimate is from 2009's Us album, and it is You Say Puppy Love. I made you fall in love with me Wish I could make you fall in love with you You believe in the magic that us could be And what that you and I means one could do Every instinct you had said run from me That this newfound touch is uncomfortable And to truly stand naked in front of me Or yourself or that there matter is something new I mean, you want to talk about the last song Evidence being like <laughs> no emotion you know like it's not gonna it's not gonna invoke any of these things it's not gonna be beautiful it's not gonna be sad this i mean the minute you hear the strings already it's like i feel like and i mean this in the most complimentary way it's almost like a disney movie you know like the 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 soundtrack the the sweeping emotions and then obviously when you hear the lyrics this sounds like it's coming from a very personal place yeah man so that song came about so that's an example of ant making a beat and being like, if I give this to Ali at the right moment, he'll also sit on it because he knows what I'm going through in my life. He's like, if I give Ali this at the right moment, something magic will happen. 
And so he, I don't know how long he had that music, but me and him were on tour together. It was me, Slug, and Ant. We did a whole tour of Europe for like a whole summer. And I think we did Australia. Like we did a lot of stuff as a package called Three the Hard Way. So it's Ant DJing because he made all the beats for both of us and me and Slug performing together. So we do like, you know, obviously Atmosphere is the much bigger attraction. So we do like three Atmosphere songs with me doing backups and for for Slug. Mm. And then we do a song or two of mine and Slug would do the hype for me. Some of the most fun I've ever had on tour. And we did one like last minute announced show in Minneapolis like this. And it was ill. We had so much fun. But me and Ant were roommates on that on that tour. And he's one of my greatest friends in life. And he knew that me and my wife were like really suffering from being away from each other for so long. And it was torture. Like it was it was heartbreaking, man. I wasn't sure if we were going to make it. And he gave me the beat. And I was like, oh, you mother. <laughs> like, come on, man. You know what you're doing. And um, so one of the days uh we were at we had a day off, and he actually left the room for mega long. Like, you know, Ant will go and explore cities and just meet people, and that's how he is. He'll he lo- he loves to walk, so he'll walk for he'll he'll it's nothing for him to like people strive to get 10,000 steps. Ant will do 20,000 steps on a regular day. Mm. Like Ant will easily get, I mean, he'll, he'll just walk for 17 hours straight, like just walking around the city. So he did that. And so I was by myself and I wanted to get stuff flowing. And so I actually transcribed, I started transcribing my favorite sad love songs. So I'd like play All Is Fair in Love by Stevie Wonder. uh, And I would just write the lyrics out and just see what does this look like? How does it feel to write these? And I did that with a number of songs, Donny Hathaway, like all of the most gut-wrenching heartbreak songs. So then I pulled that song up and I wrote it really quickly. I recorded it into my computer as a demo. And when Ant came back, he was like, what's up with you? I, I was super quiet and I was just like, I have to show him this. So I played the song. And uh, <laughs> I was crying and and he was just sitting there looking down and I got done and he just goes, fuck. <laughs> I was like, right, and we didn't talk about it at all. Then we got back in on the Us album. Those were originally samples, but he had everything replayed. Like he, everything on the Us album are live instruments. And so they had a string section. Um, the title track called Us is from a gospel sample. They went to a church and recorded like a small church. They they mic'd up a church um, and there were like some of the uh, directors from Sounds of Blackness were there like directing it. It was a major production, that album. And um, so that one in particular, full string section. And also I, when I recorded it, I was really struggling with my voice. Like I, I go in and out of like really struggling with like really losing my voice. I got permanent vocal damage. So um, I recorded a couple songs and my voice was shot. And I was, and they were like, do you want to call it a night? And I I'm, I used to be able to record four or five songs, like track four or five songs, vocals a day. Yeah. And I'm feeling bad about that. I'm like, Let's just pull up Puppy Love. It's I think I, I don't need to yell. So my voice is like damaged when I recorded the song. And then I went through it and I'm thinking, I'm just kind of remembering the, the words. And I'm thinking this is the walkthrough. And my voice is damaged. And I like cried and my voice cracked and all this kind of stuff. And we got done. And I was like, all right, let's do the real one. And 
Ant and Joe Mabbitt, who's the producer for almost all that stuff. I did a really dope uh, conversation on Travis podcast with Joe Mabbitt. Yep. They both were like, no, that's it. You're done. Trust, trust us. This is beautiful. And so, and I've, I, I never performed that song. I performed that song one time. I did a live when I first moved to Istanbul, I did uh new year's Eve or new year's day live from Istanbul. Mm. I did the song. And I like fully like got, you know, the, all the emotions and everything. But man, that's a very special song to me. My wife hates its guts because that's a it. She's like, well, I listen to it like I'm in that moment. That was the roughest point. We've been together almost 20 years. I'm crazy about my wife. She's crazy about me. But like that was our low point of our relationship that's also captured. And it's a very loving like. It basically is me saying like. If I'm holding you back, like I'm giving you permission, I don't want to not be with you, but I need you to be the truest you. And if being with me is holding you back from doing that, I'm telling you that you should leave and go be the person you can be. She ended up being that person with me, which is ideal. Like, that's great. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. Um, But yeah, puppy love is real to a puppy. And I just even remember thinking, like writing that, knowing like, man, this is really good. I don't think anybody ever said this line before, but it sounds like a line that like Quentin Tarantino or, you know, it sounds like somebody who does dialogue. Sounds like an old adage, you know, an an old like universal truth that, yeah, but I I hadn't heard that before. I feel like I could do a whole other podcast with artists and creatives talking about the challenges and the workarounds in maintaining relationships with, with what is ultimately uh, an even crazier relationship, which is just, you know, the relationship with art, the relationship with, you know, carving out your own path and, and being able to juggle those things. Cause it's certainly, uh, it, it, it's a very challenging, um, road to take, you know, it's challenging on its own. And then when you're bringing other people into it, it becomes even more complex. It's worthy of study, man. You know, when the me too thing happened and then, um, you know, there was a, I hate the word cancel culture because it's very dismissive. You know what yeah. I mean? Like it's a shorthand. Like, oh, I, I, I know what you mean, but it's, it's a shorthand. Yeah. Yeah. There was a, a thing in Minneapolis where people started talking about their sexual encounters with artists. And it wasn't just hip hop artists, but it was across the board. Artists and DJs and people, you know, video directors and all this stuff. And and there were some people that really tried to focus it and aim it at rhyme sayers, which isn't fair. And it's honestly not what wasn't helpful. Um, you know, and but what I hoped would come out of all of that, you know, is beyond accountability, just like an examination of love, sex, fandom, um, and the, the, the how those things all work together, and fame and power, and uh, you know, the 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 ways that the, all of that stuff. Like I would, I think that we would all really benefit from exploring that stuff in a really meaningful way and seems like we never got to that part you know um i have a song called electric energy where i talk about strangers meeting each other and having sex from observing it you know what i mean i met i met my wife at an atmosphere show in my second atmosphere tour you know what i'm saying so like that that's my that's my relationship with this stuff so i met her and me and her worked it out so i worked it all out with one person but from observing 
all most of the other many of the other artists I've been on the road with, there are these like brief relationships, you know, and and the the listener is coming in with certain assumptions and and desires and things that they want to get out of it and all this stuff. So I made this song called Electric Energy with Jake One that where I'm kind of exploring all this stuff and it's not a pretty picture, but yeah, man, I, I really think that some some long form discussion around maintaining relationships, but then also that weird like intersection of being on stage and sex specifically, because mm. it goes, it, it's, it's a huge spectrum, man. There And all types of experiences are to be had there. Not all of them are pretty and not all of them are ugly. <laughs> well, now I do want to hear this program or this exploration. Somebody, somebody needs to do it. Um, <laughs> we've reached our last song and the last song comes from the undisputed truth from 2007 and it is a song called letter from the government Sir, Dad, man we gonna have to settle this another way when the knuckles turn white eyes begin bulging i've taken an honest look at my life since soaking i've been soaking about it all week hearing the dull screeching metal grind in the concrete sparks dance where the worst of both worlds clash meaning the blue tyrants in my broke ass i understand this is pawn take pawn shit but i'll be damned if you Shoot me on my lawn, bitch Think twice for shining that light In my drawers in the alley In the middle of the night Garbage bagging I feel for a lot of people This album and, and this era Was a very defining moment for you uh, In, you know, the first album and, and the EP that followed it You know, was was you putting your You know, sort of flag in, in the sand That's a, I think that's a phrase Flag in the sand You know what I mean <laughs> um, And, uh and I feel like this album was more of a, you know, a maturation of of that sound and sort of identifying and talking about the type of things, sort of setting the course for a lot of the territory that you would go on to explore throughout the rest of your career. What kind of memories or, or thoughts do you have when you hear this song? So this song, so I'm, I'm really glad I haven't really had a chance to talk about this publicly, but... And, uh, you know, so for people that know underground, independent Midwest hip hop, there's a crew from Chicago called the Mole Men. The idea that like moles are people that are underground and they're digging and they're finding all this stuff. Yeah. And there, it's a producer crew. Um, so uh, Panic, who used to go by His Panic, His Panic, but then you just start going by Panic. Um, you know what I'm saying? And this like crew of, you know, Sonia uh, was was doing a lot of the like business stuff um jr dj pns uh they they had a super ill dj uh dj precise that was down with them um an mc that people knew at that time and he went on to be a politician uh used to be called optimist prime idea battled him and said you call yourself optimist after this you'll be a pessimist <laughs> but he then he was just going by prime super dope they're like mexican-american cat super ill from chicago um they were kind of like, in some ways, like a, 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 a Chicago counterpart to Rhyme Sayers. At those early days when it was like just people living together, making music together. There's not much of a business entity here. We just make music together. So they embraced me really early. And there's three songs that ended up on my albums that I initially did with them. And then I ended up going and asking them, hey, can I actually have this song back? and do it on this project with Ant. Uh, 
And all three times they're just like, yeah, cool. If you have an opportunity to, yeah, do it. They were so cool about it. But I went there and like they gave me beats and they probably paid for studio time and sat there with me. But there's three songs. One of them is Champion from from Shadows on the Sun. Another one is when maybe I think when the beat comes in, I think I did one of those verses maybe on a moment beat. And then Letter from the Government was also that way. Um, and all three times. So there's one that ended up coming out. Oh, Memo, African-American brother named Memo that's down with them, too, back in those days. I'm not sure how like I'm still talk to the people, but I don't know what's up with the crew. But uh, I did one with Memo called Life Sentence that that song actually came out. I didn't I couldn't do it to him a fourth time. But yeah, so that particular song came about like that. Um, and the song was based on like the idea of it is that people who sign up and go to the military in a lot of ways, I was drawing a connection between them and people who sell drugs hmm. um, that, you know, it's like to the time was one that was like really big on, there was a lot of drugs being sold in hip hop music. And there were a lot of people that were really judgmental of that. Hmm. And then there was also a really patriotic time, like a, a lot of like false patriotism. Like we, we were still very much in the post nine 11 thing. Iraq war was going strong, um, you know, and so this idea that like, you know, my friends that sign up and go into the military, talking to the people that were like in the movement that were dissing them, it's like, hey, these people are just trying to make it in life. And some of them probably think that they're doing something good. But either way, they're just people. They're people trying to survive. You know what I mean? And then also on the other side of the law or respectability or whatever, my friends that are selling drugs, they're not, they're just trying to survive. And some of them are trying to funnel this stuff into legitimate businesses and, you know, things that are empowering and, and they're giving charity and, they, you know, so it was just trying to show in America that these two things that seem like they're so separate, they're actually really, really connected, you know, in a lot of ways. So, you know, that song didn't get as much attention as Uncle Sam Goddamn, which is the other like overtly political song on that record. But it's one that I feel really good that, you know, I'm, I'm glad that song exists. And also um, Chuck D gave me the thumbs up to kind of like repurpose his line from Black Steel in the Hour of Chaos. That was yes. That, yeah. Super dope. Super dope. Um, I want to ask, you know, what you said you have three projects that are sort of on deck. Can you talk a little bit more about what you have coming up and, and, you know, whether you want to talk about the details of that or just what can people expect in, in the rest of this year from brother Ali? Yeah. So there's actually four and we haven't announced any of them yet, but, um, uh, you know, there, there's probably a, we'll probably make announcements and things like that. But, um, so I, we're going to do, I think it's the first ever like speech, like public speaking record that a hip hop artist has done. Um, so I went back to Minneapolis and I did shows there and it was really strange. A lot, a lot of stuff around just the, the, the politics and the music community in Minneapolis is really fractured and broken. It's in really rough shape. The artists in Minneapolis canceled each other and the, certain online you know people online like that was not a small thing that happened there you know in in the summer it's kind of in the wake of george floyd it was during the pandemic 
Um, you know what I mean? And so people weren't together with each other. Also, uh, Rhyme Sayers had stopped throwing their sound set festival and they closed their store. So the two ways that people interacted and really benefited very directly from Rhyme Sayers was like, every year Rhyme Sayers is going to throw the biggest all hip hop festival in America. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be in Minneapolis. And they have an entire stage dedicated and like, they are dedicated more than any other big major festival to local music being a major part of it. I'm saying Rock the Bells didn't do that. I lo- I played Rock the Bells. I loved it. It was great. Pay Dues didn't do that. Rolling Loud doesn't do that. None of the big festivals do that. And Rhyme Series did that every year. And so a lot of artists knew that however they felt about this you know, they rhyme series seems so big when you're in the Twin Cities, but so that closed down. They stopped doing that. And then the, also the record store closed down where artists could come and sell their music right alongside everything else and have all these workshops. And I mean, I didn't own that label. I didn't own a single share of it. I didn't make the decisions about it. So I'm just talking about structurally what they did with that label. They gave back a lot to that community. And it really seems that the community was okay with aiming this very real, uh, you know, need to have these conversations about stuff at that label and just really have it be focused at them. Um, why was I saying that? Oh, because then I went back to Minneapolis and it was hard to get booked at First Avenue and then First Avenue booked Dave Chappelle, who's a friend of mine, and then canceled the show. Right. And some of the artists that I had taken on tour Um, I asked them to open for me in Minneapolis and they said yes. And then they were worried about how they might be perceived, you know, with relation to rhyme series. So then they came back and said, no, it was really challenging. Um, And so I did two nights in Minneapolis, both sold out. And I did like an open conversation with the people that came Hmm. like an onstage, like convert dialogue. Um, George Floyd's fiance was there. Um, You know, all these people were there. And so we had this conversation just about music and art and race and culture and all this stuff. And we recorded it. And um, so we're going to release it on vinyl. Wow. And I don't think out of all these great speakers, you know what I mean, that I think are better speakers than me, KRS-One, Immortal Technique, Chuck D, um, all these, I don't think that there's been a hip hop artist that released a recording of us doing a public speaking thing. So that's coming um i also did a whole kind of like quarantine project that we just never finished um so that's like a whole album of uh stuff that i recorded sitting in this seat on this microphone yeah Uh, i ended up building a booth back there but but, um you know while we're all locked up and when i first moved to istanbul um i recorded a whole project like that that i really love and so we're just putting the finishing touches on that that's ready to go I have another uh, collection of my brother Minister freestyles coming, Dope. all stuff that I made here in Istanbul. So that's coming. And then I'll make another album. Ant. Amazing. Amazing. And obviously you're keeping things going with the Travelers podcast, which is just, you know, such a great, brilliant extension of your ideas and your personality and, you know, all of the things that people appreciate of your music. It's just so dope to see it have another channel to be presented and, and, and express differently. And, you know, I remain a huge fan. I definitely look forward to uh, listening every week when it comes out. So I do appreciate you taking the time, Brother Ali. 
that means a lot. It means a lot for me to be. This is, you know, you know that you're one of the podcasters, and this is one of the shows that I really, really get a lot of inspiration from and motivation. So I'm happy to be here, and your encouragement means a lot to me, man. I really appreciate it very much. Thank you so much. Much love and respect and appreciation to Ali for appearing on the show for a second time and sharing his insight and his wisdom and his knowledge and, uh, you know, just giving great conversation, doing, doing great podcast stuff. So make sure that you visit www.brotherali.com to stay up to date with everything that he has going on in his career now and moving forward. And you can go to questionshiphop.com to stay up to date with all things questions related. We'll be back next week with another episode. And who knows what the format is going to be because I already set it up in the beginning. It could be anything at any point. Um, big shout out to the Stony Island Audio Network. Things go out to Czarism and Might is the Beast who made the show's theme. Big shout out to the Patreon. And I will see you next week. Peace. Oh, no.